Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 30 years ago, Bill McKibben wrote The End of Nature, the first book on climate change. He became an activist when he founded 350.org and began a fossil fuel divestment campaign and a campaign against the Keystone XL pipeline. Bill McKibben's latest book is Falter. It's just out, and it's about how the has the human game begun to play itself out. Falter worries not just about climate change, but about the civilizational impact of bioengineering and artificial intelligence. Bill McKibben is at the Chicago Humanities Fest on Saturday at the Field Museum. It is good to talk with you, Bill McKibben. Well, it's good to talk with you in Chicagoland. Uh, I wanted to, to one kind of get the through line here between climate change and bioengineering and artificial intelligence. Uh, what what made you go to those places? Well, I'm I am and have been long interested in questions that seem to me to present existential risk. So, 30 years ago, I wrote the first book about climate change, The End of Nature, and at the time, climate change was still a kind of warning and abstraction. Now, of course, it's the brute reality of everyday life for hundreds of millions of people. Things like human genetic engineering and advanced artificial intelligence feel to me, for reasons I explain in the book, very much like what climate change did 30 years ago. A palpable and understandable threat very much on the horizon, but one that we haven't taken as seriously as we should, haven't had a real discussion about as a nation – because we're preoccupied with other things. I very much hope that we don't end up in the same place we did with climate change, which was putting off that discussion, which we're finally, I think, starting to have for 30 years, because it's a hell of a lot easier to grapple with things before they're entirely out of control. It also seems like it's a little like climate change in that a a small amount of people seem to control the decision making when it comes to bioengineering and artificial intelligence. Um, You know, there's a few large corporations that are doing artificial intelligence and a few scientists who are doing bioengineering. Yes, this is correct. One of the points of the book and one of the places that we sort of make this connection is that 30, 40 years ago, a kind of dominant ideology emerged on this in this country. And because of this country's power and prominence on this planet, that was this kind of libertarian market solve all problems. Government is always the problem, not the solution uh, idea. Uh, And it was one of the things that made us look the other way around climate change Uh, That and a skillful campaign executed by the fossil fuel industry to convince people that there was doubt where no doubt existed. Uh, The same libertarian impulse applies in Silicon Valley. If there's one uh, idol that the Koch brothers and their crew and the Silicon Valley uh, Titans share, it's uh, Ayn Rand and her points that – the rich should be left alone to do the thing that they're doing, that, that altruism is a bad idea, that there isn't really no such thing as society, only individuals. So that through line is, to me, one of the remarkable stories of the last four decades. Now, the last part of your book is about the things that um, might give us an outside chance 
And when it comes to um, bioengineering and artificial intelligence, it seems to be regulation, just straight up government regulation is going to be the thing that, uh, is, uh, that controls those things. Well, that's true. Um, but for that regulation to happen, you need to build movements, just as we've tried to do around climate change with increasing success. Look, there's, you know, as you know, in October, a Chinese doctor produced the first two designer babies in the history of the planet. And that did cause some real kickback from certain parts of the scientific community who are trying to draw a line against this uh, uh, heritable genetic modification to say that we can use genetic therapy to cure all kinds of diseases in existing people, but we shouldn't be using it to try and increase the IQ or improve the mood of our offspring. And that's very good to see that kickback starting to happen, but it will not stand up against the power of the uh, 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 of the commercial interests that foresee the payday in doing all this kind of work unless it comes with a movement attached to it. Now, I've spent my life <laughs> building, uh, helping build the movement around climate change. Someone else is going to have to do that work here. But one of the things I was suggesting in the book is that the 20th century gave us a couple of remarkable technologies, if you will. And one of them was this technology of nonviolent movement building from the suffragists, from Gandhi, from Dr. King, from a million others. This idea emerged over the last hundred years of how the small and the many could stand up to the mighty and the few. It's, I warn anyone, very hard work and there are no guarantees but given the imbalances of wealth and power in our society, it's probably the only way we have. It certainly has been that way with climate change. Do you, are there any lessons you draw from the climate change campaigns that you can apply to artificial intelligence and bioengineering? You know, it seems like the people who are upset about artificial intelligence are, you know, Elon Musk and a few um, high-tech people who are very elite and, you know, a lot of regular everyday people are not at all organized or really thinking about how to respond to something like that. Is, is yes, there a comparison that, there? That's part of the key. You can't let the discussion be confined to those circles all the time um, because only in the end can mass action uh, 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 shift. I mean, the, 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 key, the keys for winning any of these fights are to shift the zeitgeist, to shift what seems natural and normal and obvious to people. Uh, in the way that happened with, say, the anti-segregation movement, with the uh, uh, women's movement, with the gay marriage movement. We're beginning to see finally that happening with climate change, with people understanding in greater numbers that the natural, normal, obvious future runs on sun and wind, not coal and gas and oil. We saw just this week the uh, government of the United Kingdom declare a climate emergency. We saw a new poll from CNN showing that among Democratic voters, climate change has become the number one issue for the upcoming election. Those are good signs that something in the zeitgeist has started to shift. Now, whether it started to shift in time is a very open question. The physical momentum of climate change is enormous. We should have started many, many years ago. Um, but I guess better late than never. 
I'm talking with Bill McKibben. He is the author of Falter most recently. It's his new book. It's about how the human game has begun to play itself out, and Bill is going to be at the Chicago Humanities Festival on Saturday at the Field Museum. Um, I wanted to also talk about um, the solar panel, which is the other thing you talk about with um, that, uh, renewed enthusiasm, reverence, in the <laughs> second half of your book, uh, where you're talking about an outside chance. It just um, seems to have uh, so made you happy. Well, so for you know, 30 years ago when we were talking about climate change, we knew we had to get off coal and gas and oil, but we didn't know precisely where we'd go instead. Uh, sun and wind were not yet ready for prime time. They were still expensive. The engineers have done their job. They've brought the price of a solar panel way, way down, 90% in the last decade. It's now the cheapest way to produce electrons across most of the world. And you really get a sense of that miracle when you went, to, as I did for this book, to large parts of rural Africa, I was in both West and East Africa, in Ghana, Ivory Coast, Tanzania, watching in remote villages that had never had power and never would have gotten it. No one was ever going to build a fossil fuel grid out to these places. But now solar panels were so cheap that suddenly you were in little towns where before – the doctor was delivering a baby with a flashlight clenched in his teeth, and now he had a you know, refrigerator to store vaccine. Um, those kind of changes make you realize that we live in a time of miracles. You can point a sheet of glass at the sun, and out the back flows light and cold and information and modernity. That's you know Hogwarts-scale magic. Now, in a sane world, we would be dropping almost every other task we have and doing everything we can to make the soul and sun and wind the backbone of our uh, uh, economies and our societies in time to ward off climate change. That's what the Green New Deal envisions, for instance. But we haven't been doing that because the fossil fuel industry, in order to hold on to its current business model, has been waging an all-out campaign against renewable energy for decades now. And that campaign has cost us three crucial decades. And we do hear things from the coal industry like we are going to be the one who help the developing world while you're sitting around with your solar panels and, and nuclear energy and whatever, whatever you've got in the West. The, the yeah. coal industry comes up with that rap. Yeah, well, the, the coal industry is pretty desperate and they told a lot of lies for a long time. In fact, the UN says that 90% of new first-time connections to electricity are going to come from renewable energy, not fossil fuel. Uh, and that's definitely what's happening across Asia and Africa, where almost everybody who doesn't have access to power now lives. Uh, uh, the coal industry is a relic <laughs> of the past. It's 18th century technology. And the fact that uh, the president of the United States is committed to boosting coal at the expense of 21st century technology should give you the heebie-jeebies not only about climate change, but about what our economy is going to be doing vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world in the decades to come. What do you smell when you look at this presidential campaign? Because in the last presidential campaign, I mean, Donald Trump held all these views and it never really came up. Uh, climate change was not something people talked about. And uh, the only guy who did was wearing a red sweater at a debate and he was from the coal industry and everybody just talked about his red sweater. 
the last three presidential cycles, environmentalists have begged and pleaded that there might be one question about climate change at the presidential debates. And that begging and pleading went unanswered. There never was. Uh, there was in the, I will say, in the Democratic primary last time, there was one question and Bernie Sanders said, uh, climate change is the most important issue in the world. As with other things, he seems to have started pushing his party in the right direction. This time around, all the candidates, almost without exception, have been outspoken and vocal, largely because it's an issue of such dire concern to Democratic voters. But been wonderful proposals. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, put out a remarkable proposal about public lands and the end to mining and drilling for coal and gas and oil. Uh, Beto O'Rourke came out this week with a five trillion dollar uh, uh, plan and and just as important yesterday signed the pledge to no longer take money from fossil fuel companies. So uh, there's not going to be any shortage of questions this time around. And my guess is that whoever the Democratic nominee is will try to ram Trump's uh, uh, climate denialism down his throat. His idea that climate change was, quote, a hoax manufactured by the Chinese is uh, so borderline delusional that if you were, you know, sitting on the bus in Chicago and the person next to you started muttering that, you'd probably get up and change seats, you know. But uh, that's proof of how powerful the fossil fuel lobby has been, that they've been able to spread this lie right to the top of the right to the top of the political food chain. I wanted to ask a question about the divestment campaign and um low-hanging fruit that's left in the divestment campaign. The divestment campaign, you've got $8 trillion of money divested from uh, fossil fuel industries, but there seems to be more soft targets out there. I was watching a video of your friend Naomi Klein talking about uh, media companies divesting and not accepting fossil fuel money anymore, which seems like a uh, smart thing to do, good way to go. This campaign that Naomi and I kind of dreamed up in 2012 has gone far better than either of us ever expected. We're, as you say, at $8 trillion now worth of endowments and portfolios that have divested by that measure the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. And yes, there more and more. I mean, at first it was sort of who you'd expect, churches and some liberal colleges and things. Now, and wonderful folks at 350 Chicago have been doing a great job on this, too. Now it's divestment, it's, it's city pension funds. New York City, London, Paris, the world's financial capitals have divested. Uh, now it's some of the biggest insurance companies in Europe. It's the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the biggest pool of investment capital on planet Earth, a trillion dollars made in the North Sea oil fields. Last summer, it was the entire nation of Ireland becoming the first country to divest all its public funds. So, yeah, there are lots of people left out there who should be and we hope soon will divest. Uh, you know, Chicago, Illinois pension funds were looking at you. And uh, I was reading about some of the Catholic institutions that are just now divesting from fossil fuel. And obviously the Pope is uh, kind of written a, uh, written a nice rule book there on climate change. And um, I, if, if I've got it right, the Chicago um, Archdiocese still has $100 million of uh, 
of fossil fuel investments? Yes, it's definitely time for religious communities to be walking the talk. They all say the right things about stewardship of the earth and things. And, and many denominations have done the right thing. Uh, the Lutherans have divested, the Unitarians, the Episcopalians. It would be a very good thing for the archdiocese to follow the clear lead that Francis put out in his remarkable encyclical on global warming, Laudato Si, three years ago now, and, and, and divest their holdings. It's the easiest way to take a truly effective stand against the, well, what, what religious people would call from the Hebrew Bible, the powers and principalities that are now afflicting our, uh, our, our planet. I'm talking with Bill McKibben. His latest book is Falter. Has the human game begun to play itself out? He'll be at the Chicago Humanities Fest on Saturday. We're going to be uh, back with more in a moment, and I'm going to introduce Bill to some of the uh, young organizers of the U.S. Uh, youth climate strike here. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking today with Bill McKibben of 350.org fame, and his new book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? And we were talking about organizing and movements in the last break, and we thought we'd bring Bill together with some of the young people who are organizing the climate movement in this area. Isabella Johnson is here. She is with the School Strike for Climate. The next one is tomorrow in Federal Plaza, and we talked with her before, before the first one. Great to see you again, Isabella. Great to see you too. Thank you for having me on. And also with us is Dejan Powell. She is the outreach team leader for Sunrise Chicago. She's a recent college graduate. Thanks for joining us, Dejan. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. And um, Bill, do you have any advice for young people? I mean, I think it's been inspiring to everyone to see young people get out and um, everyone's seen Greta Thunberg out there uh, talking, talking truth to power and people have responded all over the globe. I've got no advice at all. They're doing it just right. I've been out with the Sunrise crew a couple of times across the country on their big road show uh, backing the Green New Deal. So many of these uh, people running the Sunrise movement are veterans of the campus divestment movement, and now they've grown up to do remarkable things. It makes me very happy to see. I was just with uh, Isabella, one of your colleagues in Denver, Haven Coleman, a uh, 12-year-old who's been one of the national coordinators for the school strikes. Um, that's incredibly powerful. Uh, Greta's been a great inspiration. She's a good soul. And here's the thing. The message that we've been hearing loud and clear from the school strikes the last little while is time for adults to back us up. So everyone should keep their eyes peeled. I think there'll be an announcement in the not too distant future about adult climate strikes in the fall. And we're going to need everybody on board. Uh, Disrupting business as usual is crucial here because it's precisely business as usual that's doing us in. It's the fact that we just keep getting up every day and doing more or less the same thing, even in the middle of the worst crisis that the planet has ever faced. That's the problem. So thank you so much to the kids who are showing the way. 
someone had a sign the other day that said, uh, uh, right now on the planet, uh, our leaders are acting like children and our children are acting like leaders. Uh, Isabella, you, we talked with you before, uh, right before the first climate strike, and you were expecting, uh, you know, who knows how many people, mm-hmm. a couple hundred. It sounds like you did well. You got like a thousand people. Yes, we actually had a huge turnout, way more than we expected. So we we're expecting an even bigger turnout tomorrow, especially because we just had Senator Dick Durbin confirm that he will be speaking with us tomorrow. So oh, we're that's very terrific. excited. Thank you. Um, so what was the best part about the first one? Um, you know, what really stuck out to me about that day was the amount of little children who came and striked from school. We had videos sent to us before the strike even began of a bunch of little kids on the train with protest posters, and they were saying they're so excited to come. And we had kids come up to me and Anya and say, can we have pictures with you? And a couple fourth graders actually came up to us and asked to interview us. And it was just a great experience seeing how these little children want to be involved and care so much about the earth already and that they're inspired by us, which meant a lot to us. That's terrific. Uh, Dejan Powell, tell us a little about yourself and, and what yeah. you're doing with the Sunrise Movement. Yep. So, hi, everyone. I'm Deja, and I grew up in Chicago, have always been really passionate and have loved the planet and the environment. I used to go fishing a lot with my dad, and um, that sort of passion and love took me to study environmental science in college. And I got to college and would look around me and see that there weren't a lot of black faces or people of color involved in um, the environmental movement. And so I spent a lot of my time thinking about how do we communicate climate change? How, how do we communicate sort of um, this love and passion that I had for the environment? And so what I'm really excited about with Sunrise is that there's really this intentional effort to put at the front line these marginalized communities. And I'm personally invested in sort of communicating to these groups, um, say like the South Side of Chicago, like why climate change matters, how it's going to impact violence in the city, how it's going to exacerbate sort of like economic inequality. The economic justice component is... Um is is key. It seems to be like the thing that's going to really drive young people. And, you know, uh, one of your colleagues who was on from the Sunrise Movement said, build the world I want to see. Yeah. I, want, I want to build the world I want to see. I yeah. want to live in. Yeah. Um, Bill, now um, I wanted to mention the Sunrise. You, you've been doing town halls around here. Um, explain what you're doing. Yep. So for the town hall, that's going to be May 18th at 2 o'clock at Logan Art Center um, down in High Park. And that's going to be really considering this question of how does climate change impact Chicago and what is the Green New Deal and sort of finding a way to share our stories, our climate stories, and get sort of everyday people interested and inspired and involved in this environmental movement. And so we're really excited. I hope people come, sign up. You can go to sunrisemovement.org slash Chicago to figure out more information. Um, And we love for people to come and show up. Um, Bill McKibben, both these movements, the school strike and the sunrise movement, they both target government. You targeted the fossil fuel industry. Um, what is there a right or a wrong thing to target here? No, this is a war with a great many fronts, and we've got to target them all. And in fact, though sometimes it feels like uh, big corporations are untouchable, uh, in some ways they're, they're more vulnerable and quicker to change than, than governments. Um, they're looking ahead to, to the future and beginning to understand just how troubled it is if they keep up their present line of business. You know, the, the, there was a story last week that the CEO of Chubb Insurance, the biggest 
privately publicly traded insurance company in the world said that last week uh, said last year that the weather had become biblical on this planet and he tied it to the existential risk of climate change when you hear ceos starting to talk like that well the talk is good now we need to get these guys out of the business of insuring new pipelines out of investing your premium dollars in uh, fossil fuel companies it's all doable uh, uh, the problem is, and here's the reason that young people have been so important here, the problem is it all has to happen fast. Climate change is a timed test. I mean, in a rational world, we would not be asking, you know, fourth graders to solve the climate problem for us. Uh, but it's a darn good thing they are because their lives are going to be terminally disrupted if we're not able to solve this soon. And I would just say to older listeners out there. Um, it's incredibly good that young people are doing this. It's not okay to leave this problem on the shoulders of 12-year-olds or even 22-year-olds. We need everybody engaged. You know, I was uh, reading about, and I had on uh, George Lakey, a veteran Quaker organizer, and he's written a book about how we win, how, how you do organizing. And he had interviewed uh, Alice Paul, one of the suffragettes, and she she lived into the 1970s. But um, going back and reading how much sacrifice they had to make to get the you know women to vote, which seemed like you know seems real obvious right now. Um, <laughs> she was out there with a thousand silent sentinels in January of 1917, and they picketed the White House for 18 months. The the people spectators uh, physically attacked them. The police arrested them for obstructing traffic. Um, Paul was sentenced to seven months in jail, where she organized a hunger strike in protest. Threatened doctors threatened to sue her and uh, put her in an insane asylum and force feed her. And this is for the right for women to vote. Uh, that was eighteen months. That that is like a. There are some endurance tests in this thing. Um, how do you how do how does the climate movement kind of measure up with that bill? Well, I mean, it's a very good reminder that this is not the first time that people have had to fight. This is just the fight of our moment. And in this country, for the most part, they don't kill people. Uh, there are lots of environmentalists who do die around the world every year, and many of them, my colleagues and friends, because they're operating in places that are so under the thumb of the fossil fuel industry that their work is just supremely dangerous. If some of the rest of us have to go to jail sometimes, um, well, depending on your skin color and things, that's not necessarily the end of the world. The end of the world is the end of the world. And those of us with some privilege in this fight better use it in order to try and get something done. I'm talking with Bill McKibben, the organizer and founder of 350.org. Deja Powell is with the outreach team for Sunrise Chicago. And Isabella Johnson is with the School Strike for Climate. Their event is tomorrow in Daly Plaza. Isabella, do you have a question for Bill? I do. I was just wondering, um, many people consider the Green New Deal very ambitious, very radical, and they say that it's unrealistic, that it's never going to happen. I've received many questions of how is this actually going to happen. So what do you say when you receive criticism of people just saying, well, the Green New Deal, that's not going to work? 
Well, I think the, the first way, first thing to say is, yeah, you know what? It would have been a lot easier if 30 years ago or 20 years ago or even 10 people had taken the much more modest steps that lots of us were calling for. But the fossil fuel industry, as you know, refused to do it. Mm-hmm. So now we have to do some pretty hard things. But the good news is the Green New Deal not only uh, – addresses climate change, it helps set us up for the broad-based, more equal, abundant society that we could have instead of a planet that's racked both by rising temperature and by rising inequality. The Green New Deal, I think the way to say it is, is the first solution that we've had that's at the scale of the crisis and that takes full advantage of that moment to do uh, just like the original New Deal did to try and and deal with the problem as a whole. And and so I'm extraordinarily proud of the people from the Sunrise Movement of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of everybody who's managed to come up with this uh, 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 powerful alternative. And boy, is it good to see it polling strongly, even in the face of endless Republican mockery and things. Uh, people are excited about the chance that we might see real change. Deja Powell, do you have a question for Bill McKibben? Yeah. So given your extensive work as a writer and activist organizer, what have you learned about partnerships specifically, given that to solve this threat, you're going to need more than just environmentalists. We're going to need Black Lives Matter activists. We're going to need labor organizers. What have you learned from partnerships that might help us? That's exactly right. And it's all over, you know, they don't call it global warming for nothing. You need the same kind of partnerships all over the world. I'd always been told that environmentalists were rich white people. And if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, you wouldn't be an environmentalist and so on. When we started 350.org, we were organizing around the planet and it immediately became clear that almost all our colleagues were poor, black, brown, Asian, young, because that's what almost all the world is composed of. In this country, the same lesson applies. It's been really good to see profound leadership coming from frontline communities and from indigenous communities in particular. And keeping that centered is is really crucial because that's where so much of the pain is, and it's where so much of the energy is. Uh, uh, you know, when we talk about the environment, we think about it in kind of narrow terms, the air or the water, but the environment is everything around us, including the legacies of the things that we've done in the past. So um, um, it's so exciting to see, for instance, the Sunrise Movement figuring out how to reach out to everybody. It's so exciting to see the multiracial organizing that's been going on in the climate strikes. It's so exciting to see people not repeating some of the mistakes of the kind of old line uh, environmentalists from a long time ago. This is a new environmental movement. And if you look at the polling data, the Americans most concerned about climate change are African Americans and Latino Americans. They're most concerned because they're hit the hardest. And so those are communities that really, really need to be on the front lines of this fight. Um, Isabella, your event is tomorrow in yes. Federal Plaza. Did you learn something about partnerships just from the last time you did this? Um, yes, definitely. We definitely learned that the more partnerships you make, the more successful your um, organization and your events are going to be. So this 
time around for this strike, we definitely reached out to a lot more local organizations um, and just different bigger activists in Chicago, more politicians, and just more people who we knew could help us in this fight because we don't want to work just our organization. We want to reach out to other organizations because really we all need to work together if we want to solve this issue. So we definitely learned a lot about reaching out to more people. If people want more information about tomorrow's uh, youth climate strike, what do they do? Um, you can go to any of our social medias. We have a Facebook page called Illinois Youth Climate Strike and a Twitter and Instagram at Climate Strike IL, and you can definitely find more information there. We are meeting at 11 a.m. at the south um, end of Grant Park tomorrow, and we would love to see you there. And Deja Powell, if people are looking for more information about Sunrise Chicago, and your event is on the 18th at uh, the Logan Center in yes. High Park. Yeah, you can visit sunrisemovement.org slash Chicago. That's terrific. And um, what do you see as the, for partnerships in the future for Sunrise? What, how do you think about that? I think it is getting out of the loop, getting out of the center and getting out of the north side. I think a lot of people right now involved in Sunrise do come from these communities. Um, and so really extensively reaching out to the south side, the west side, and building those partnerships across different types of organizations, I think, is a future that I hope to see with Sunrise in Chicago. All right, Bill. And and so, you're, Bill, you're going to do something in the fall where there's going to be a grown-up climate strike. Keep your eyes peeled. Uh, I have no doubt that people like Sunrise and the climate strike crew will be part of all of the planning and the work, and the uh, details will be everywhere, including at 350.org. And uh, Bill, I do uh, did notice that 350.org, while you're here in, at the uh, Chicago Humanities Festival, at the same time, they're doing a training at the American Indian Center on Keystone XL Pipeline uh, Civil Disobedience. That's right. For 10 years, we've kept this thing out of the ground. And there's, as you know, Trump is pushing hard to build Keystone. And so people will be there doing trainings in nonviolent civil disobedience uh, and other forms of resistance, other forms of nonviolent resistance. Um, because if it comes to it, we're going to go join the people on the reservation uh, uh, who do not want this pipeline crossing their land. All of us should feel the same way and be grateful to them for their leadership, because even if that oil never spills into the ground of the Midwest, it's going to spill into the atmosphere once it gets burned. And that's at the American Indian Center in Chicago on Saturday, and that's an all-day event, and people can sign up for that on Facebook. Thanks a lot for joining us, Bill McKibben. His new book is Falter. He'll be at the Humanities Festival on Saturday. And thanks very much to uh, Isabella Johnson. Her youth climate strike is tomorrow in Federal Plaza. And uh, also thanks very much to Deja Powell from Sunrise Chicago. Their next uh, event is on the 18th at the Logan Center. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, everybody. Many thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment with people who make the world a better place, and we'll talk about the miraculous things that the Syrian American Medical Society does. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. The Syrian American Medical Society, known as SAMS, its acronym, was a professional collaboration of Syrian and Syrian American health providers when the Syrian conflict broke out in 2011. SAMS then transformed itself into a health care delivery apparatus for Syrians and Syrian refugees. They support 110 medical facilities and over 3,000 medical personnel in the region. SAMS delivers supplies and also ships huge pieces of equipment like radiation therapy equipment and CAT scans into Syria. With me are two Chicago-area physicians who went to Lebanon in March to perform surgeries for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Samer al Qadari is, is a board member of the Midwest chapter of SAMS. Nice to see you. Thank you for having us. And Mohammed al Qadari is with us as well. He is a veteran of um, almost double-digit missions to uh, the region. It's Thanks my, for joining us. Thank you. Um, I did, you know, I don't know if everybody knows what SAMS is, but when I think of an organization that has responded to the worst crisis of our lifetimes and done a great job in in our community, I think of SAMS because um, what a what a miraculous thing you've done. You you've been like the medical system that has provided for so many people who need it in Syria and beyond. Um, could you kind of describe what happened to yourselves there, Samer. So uh, the the medical crisis uh, for these refugees is, varies based on the various countries, um, and a lot of our work has been with Lebanon. Um, Lebanon is one of those areas where the, the refugees are not necessarily recognized as refugees, and their access to health care. Um, is pretty limited as compared to some of the other countries. And there's a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon about? There's about a million refugees in Syria, from Syria and Lebanon. Um, SAMS, uh, you know, focuses its efforts on the whole world. So a lot of its efforts have been on within Syria. So over the last year has provided uh, medical care for about two and a half million people within Syria. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of things have to come together and work with a lot of organizations and and just a lot of people have to come together to try to deliver that care. Um, Mohammed, now you tell us about your first medical mission. You've, you're the veteran of like eight of them or so. Uh, what, how did you first get involved and do this? So when the Syrian crisis started about eight years ago, uh, a bunch of guys and us got together and we decided to go to uh, Syria. Uh, but we couldn't go to Syria. So what we did was we went to Turkey and then on the border. At that time, there was no crazy things going on. And so we went to a hospital there uh, and we started seeing patients. And at that time, all the injuries were brand new injuries. So they were traumatic injuries. There was a lot of uh, uh, trauma that we would take care of. So we'd go there seven, ten days and we'd see these patients with traumatic eye injuries. That's my specialty. Um and uh, that's how it started. And then over time, uh, we started going to Lebanon to see Syrian refugees. And when we then we started seeing these chronic issues, uh, people who had regular eye care, regular strabismus, cataracts, regular problems that nobody was taking care of. And that's how it developed. Initially, when we first went there, I thought we were like at MASH. You remember MASH, the show? Yeah. And it's like, I, mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, people, they'd be like, oh, there's a conflict going on. And like 50 people would come in with shrapnel in their eyes, open globes, traumatic cataracts, and they would deal with right away. I remember when I was there, there was a bullet, because I was the only doctor there at this hospital. And there was a bullet that came through the trachea of a patient. And my brother was still in residency at Henry Ford. I sent him a picture. Hey, what should we do with this patient here? Nobody's here. I'm the only doctor here. What can we do? And you're a head 
had a neck surgeon. I had a neck surgeon. <laughs> that was my first. Uh, actually, yeah, I remember you were just that. randomly. <laughs> yeah, that re- that was actually the first uh, my kind of that what got me involved. When he sent me that message and I saw that picture, and I was literally responding from across the world, I realized that I probably need to be over there. <laughs> to try to help. so And, I mean, SAMS has a lot of infrastructure, though, and a lot of contacts, I think, that people would be amazed at, that you're, you're, you're in there with the Syrian doctors, you're in there with clinics at the refugee places. Uh, expand, explain the scope of that. Yeah, so SAMS is not just focused on the refugees. It's really, in, for example, in Lebanon, where we have the most experience, it's focused on trying to deliver care to the refugees, but also um, the indigent population in Lebanon. They also have access to these cares. And so what they do is they have to work with the local facilities and hospitals, um, try to make these contracts and contacts to allow us to be able to provide care. And so it's very tricky. They have to find the facilities that have the same motivation as SAMS, who are, are who really are doing it for the right reasons, right? So the patients have to be taken care of properly and cared for just like we would care for them here in the States. So what kind of things happened in March when you went on this latest trip? So in, uh, in, when we went in March, uh, we took care of a lot of young children who uh, needed ophthalmology care, that uh, strabismus. So these are, these are things that can be uh, really life-changing for these children. So if, if someone has strabismus, which means the eyes don't move in the same direction, uh, you can imagine the impact it can have on, on the children for the rest of their development. Also saw a lot of, uh, personally, I saw a lot of patients that had thyroid problems and required surgery um, and things that are not urgent, but over time have become kind of critical. So maybe the first year of the crisis when it wasn't that large of a lesion, it wasn't a problem. But now that it's quadrupled in size and it's five years later, um, this becomes more of a relevant issue. So um, so seeing a lot of uh, problems that are even cancerous. So, you know, these patients are are, are are just like everyone else and they get the same problems that other uh, populations get. So trying to figure out how to treat cancer and some of those more complicated issues in this environment is extremely hard. Um, Mohammed, what was the trip to Lebanon like for you this time? So this time, uh, obviously, since we've been going every year and they're waiting for us, patients can't afford surgery for crossed eyes or strabismus. So there's a big like network in Lebanon. They know we come. So all these patients get saved over the year, and then they come when we're there. And they're WhatsApping the director of the hospital, and they come and they see me. And you cannot believe how happy these children are. Or the older people that have cataracts that have no money to take care of it. You can't can't imagine people are destitute after seven years of having no income, no work. They're just happy that they can see. I think one thing that is really important to stress in this situation is that anybody can volunteer on a SAMS mission trip. So sams-usa.net. So this year, Amber Heard was a famous uh, actress uh, from Aquaman. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, my daughter loves that lady. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, we, we want to stress that anybody can go. Even if you work at a Starbucks, you work at a Target, you can go there and volunteer. It is pretty safe. There's no issues with safety for yourself. You can see orphanages. Uh, when you see these kids and you ask them what's going on, people are so happy that you take attention to them. If you just talk to them, they perk up because nobody is looking at these people. So that kind of highlights one of the important things is <clears throat> not only is it just providing care, but it's providing compassionate and quality care. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we see patients, they might have heard they have a diagnosis or been told by one of the local physicians that they have this particular problem. 
Well, sometimes, you know, if you're in a situation where you don't have, you're a refugee, you may not have a lot of uh, things to work towards. I mean, one of the things you're focused on is improving your health. And so uh, a lot of times just directing these patients to the appropriate health care, getting them connected to the right doctors that can treat them locally, or if it's something that our mission trip needs to address, we'll try to take care of them. But it's a lot of times just providing compassion. I mean, these, these people need to be heard. And sometimes uh, there's some of the most complex cases. Sometimes all I needed to do is just show compassion. We're talking with Samer Al-Qadari and Mohammed Al-Qadari, and they're both with the Syrian-American Medical Society, and uh, we're discussing their most recent trip to Lebanon. But um, you mentioned that there are lots of different kinds of trips there, and yours are are focused around the head. You're both uh, uh, head surgeons, but uh, there's there's, uh, gynecological trips. There's all sorts of different trips that happen during the course of the year. Some of the largest trips were actually the women's mission. So the women's mission had many OB-GYNs with them, nurse practitioners, anesthesiologists, but also had just women volunteers. So uh, if you go to the website, you can find, you'll see a lot of the different trips. There's trips to Jordan, trips to Turkey, trips to Lebanon, and even Greece. Uh, some of the sad stories that I've seen there are very, are very sad. So for example, I saw one child and I, I, in this orphanage. So I asked, why is this child in the orphanage? They said, because his mom passed away. And then when his mom passed away, his dad did not know what to do. And he was doing, he was like taking a cigarette and burning him, burning the child's uh, uh, skin. So they needed to put him in orphanage. The, the reason I'm saying is this, I want people to know that if you go, you can help people in an orphanage, you can take little gifts, you can, you can do a lot by showing up to these things. That's what I really want to stress because not everybody's a doctor. I get that. Right. Not everybody's a social worker. Nope. But So if you want to just pick up and go, you will get so much more out of it than anything that you could ever imagine. You'll be so happy. Samer? Um, <clears throat> uh, just um, do you, do, uh, When you think about the future here um, – in these refugees, a lot of them are seem to be permanently displaced. Uh, what, when you're physicians and you think about that, what is what does that say to you? Uh, how do you th- think about their future health care if they're in a exactly. if they were in a bad state two years ago? They're going to be in a bad state two years from now. Yeah, this is exactly kind of my biggest concerns. Is when we first would go to these mistrips, you'd think this may be a short term, one or two year problem, but these are chronic problems, and I think. These populations being displaced, not having access to the appropriate screening care, routine health care, over time is just going to um, ex- be exponential in terms of the, the other health care problems that are going to develop and how we're going to provide access. So the real goal, um, you know, as I said early on, it's, it varies by the region. But for a place like Lebanon where the infrastructure is difficult, um, that's where I really worry. I mean, in other countries, there's other organizations trying to help, and everybody assumes there's some larger organization that's going to help. But I think the need to provide specialized care is going to be needed over time, whether it's because of expertise is not available or just from, as we've been talking about, financials. I mean, being able to provide that care at no cost or almost zero cost is is necessary for these patients. So over time, um, I hope that we can... First of all, identify that this is truly a long-term issue that we need to start coming up with solutions with. And it's not just a financial solution. It also needs people with the appropriate 
care, focus, and attention to kind of help develop that healthcare system and how are we going to long-term address these issues. Uh, Mohammed, do you have some thoughts about that, what the future holds for healthcare with people? Unfortunately, some of the common issues that we see on these mission trips could be treated with glasses. And, you know, these glasses are expensive. We don't have the prescription. We're only there for a short period of time. So some of the things in the United States we treat easily over there, like, oh, we can't really treat this. Here's a prescription for glasses. They're like, Doc, I can't afford these glasses. So some of the volunteer, you know, some of these things that I'm trying to throw ideas out there where I want people to think in how they can get involved. That's really what I want people to think about. Uh, unfortunately, uh, even basic eye drops are expensive for patients. Some of the treatments that we have here. Uh, I want everybody just to think how they could pitch in if they wanted to. Some of the things that <clears throat> we can use is learn from other organizations that have worked with other displaced populations over the years. So um, the one issue here is that some of these refugees, you're not necessarily getting the support from the governments, and that's what makes it challenging. But I think uh, there's a lot of innovative ways that other people that participate in global health have been able to learn. For example, using healthcare uh, medical record systems that can be kind of bare bones and just have a few computers, um, maybe implementing some of those to help these patients because this problem isn't going to be short term. So we got to get organized. Um, and then continue to provide what we're doing, but we have to improve and improve in not only providing access, continue to work on continuity. Um, you know, we're just one very small piece of this uh, big puzzle here to provide this care and, and kind of increasing awareness and working with all the different parts of the organization. Well, I've always been super impressed with the Syrian American Medical Society, and I emceed the recent uh, gala, and, and I couldn't believe it when they were like, uh, people were saying, and let's have a round of applause for the guy who took the CAT scan into northern Syria. And then somebody gets up, and they, 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 they took a CAT scan into northern Syria. Yeah. It's, it's like, that, that's like, that's pretty wild. There's some real heroes out there. And um, I would say that, you know, what we do is very small, but every any anything that you can do to increase awareness and support, um, you'll be a hero for someone. Samar al-Qadari is on the board of the Midwest chapter of the Syrian Americans Medical Society. Mohammed al-Qadari is as well. They're both uh, physicians and were recently in Lebanon in March on their most recent mission trip. And people can get more information on the website at sams-usa.net. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. For Tomorrow we'll be at uh, the Chicago Fair Trade Expo. We'll do a live broadcast from the Fourth Presbyterian Church. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.